Well, greetings to all of you. It's a privilege to be here on a very beautiful Sabbath. A little bit cold, but it's still a beautiful day here in Charlotte. And greetings to those of you that will be listening uh, at this to the sermon sometime later. You know, as we heard in the, I think in the sermonette, the Sabbath is a very special time. We understand from the scriptures that the Sabbath is a day of rest. It's a day to worship God. It's a day to reflect. It's a day to refocus on really the important things of life. Why are we here? Where are we going? What's coming down the road? What is God's plan and purpose? And how do we relate to God's plan and purpose? What is our role going to be? What I'd like to do as we begin the sermon today is to pose a question. I want you to think a little bit and to think deeply and answer the question in your own mind. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Now, many of you will respond, yes, I am. And my answer would be, how do you know? How do you know you're a Christian? And again, your response might be, because I believe in Jesus. I would say that's a good Protestant answer. (laughs) And I'm not mocking anybody. Because sometimes we don't go far enough. We don't go far enough. Obviously, we believe in Jesus Christ. But if you look up the word Christian, you'll find a more expansive definition. It talks about people that believe in Jesus Christ are Christians. But a more expansive definition says a person who follows the teaching of Jesus Christ who believes in Jesus Christ, who follows the teachings of Jesus Christ, or follows Christ and his teachings. Another definition says a Christian is a person who follows the religious teachings of Jesus Christ. In other words, we do what Jesus said to do, not just believe in him. Because, you know, there's a scripture in James chapter 2 and verse 19 says, even the demons believe in God. And even demons believe in Jesus Christ. They know who he is. What many of us may not realize today is even Muslims believe in Jesus Christ. He's going to be the assistant to a Muslim Messiah who comes. So believing in Jesus Christ does not necessarily make us a Christian. Is following his teachings. Is doing what he says to do. Another question. What did Jesus teach? What does he want us to be doing? I think we're aware of the scripture in John 14, 15. says, if you love me, if you want to be a Christian, you want to be my disciple then keep my commandments. See, that's more than just believing in Jesus. It's keeping his commandments. All ten of them, not just a couple, but all ten of them. He was asked in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, 
Well, the young man said, what's the greatest commandment? You know, get to the bottom line. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus says to love God with all your heart. And then the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So these are part of the teachings, some of the teachings of Jesus Christ. What else did he command us to do? What else did he tell us that he wants us to do? Turn to Matthew 24, and this then will begin to move into the sermon. I just wanted to ask you a couple of those other questions to get your mind working a little bit. But in Matthew 24, towards the end of that chapter, beginning in verse 42, it says, Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So he's telling us to watch. He didn't say, you know, if if you don't have anything else to do, (laughs) then you might watch. What? Television? No, watch for some specific things. But know this, that if the master of the house, and he uses a little analogy here, had known the hour that the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. That's another command. I want you to watch And I want you to be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus is telling his disciples, these are some things I want you to do. And if we didn't get it enough in Matthew 24, go over to Matthew 25 where he talks about these ten virgins. He says five were wise, five were foolish. The wise prepared, but they all tended to drift off and go to sleep. And then the master came and invited five of them to go into the kingdom of God. The uh, other five, their lamps were running out of oil, so they went out to buy more oil when Christ was coming. We've got to go back now and go buy some oil because we forgot to bring it. We're not ready. And then they came and wanted to come in, and he said, you know, I don't know who you are. You're late. You didn't show up on time. And they wound up standing outside. Verse 13, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming said, you weren't ready. Sorry. See, they had been warned again and again and again. Let's go to uh, Mark chapter 13 very quickly, just to look at a couple of these other scriptures. Mark chapter 13, again, talking about the return of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 32. So we're reading things here where Christ repeats or where what Christ said is repeated in the scriptures. But of the day or the hour, no man knows, not even the angels in heaven. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. Take heed, be alert, watch and pray. Watch and pray that you do not know, for you don't know the time or the, uh, when that time is. Done verse 35. Watch, therefore, if you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening at midnight at the crowding of crowing of the rooster, lest coming suddenly 
he finds you sleeping. It's interesting when you go through some of the prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea, it talks again and again and again of things are going to happen suddenly. And people are not going to be ready for those things. The Sabbath is a time really to think about some of these things, not a time just to come to church, then hop in your car and go out to a movie or go shopping or some other thing, which many people do on Sundays. They go to church and then they come home, watch football games, (laughs) or they go out to the mall and walk around. They take maybe one hour out of a day on Sunday as opposed to taking 24 hours, as God says, to pray, to worship, to draw closer to God, to think about, to think about, where am I going? What am I doing? Where do I want to be when Christ returns? Lest suddenly he comes and finds you sleeping. One more scripture in Luke 21. And there are different things mentioned in each one of these scriptures, even though that they're talking about basically the same thing. Luke chapter 21, again in verse 32. And Luke repeats some of the things in Matthew and Mark. So you don't know the time whenever Christ is going to return, verse 34, but take heed to yourselves. You know, stay alert. Think about it lest your hearts be weighted down with carousing, drunkenness, the cares of this life. The cares of this life. You don't come to church and think about all the bills that you have to pay. <laughs> They'll still be there you know, tomorrow morning. So don't worry about it today. For those of you taking classes, you got an exam on Monday. Don't worry about it on the Sabbath. Don't worry about it on the Sabbath. You just put that on a shelf. The exam's not going to go anywhere. If you relax your brain, start studying Saturday night or Sunday morning, you'll be ready. But take 24 hours to draw closer to God. Take heed to yourselves, verse 34, lest your hearts be weighted down with carousing, drunkenness, the cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. They're going to be caught in other things. You mean Christ came while I was at the mall? Wow. Or he came while I was watching TV, the the, the World Series, watching some basketball game or whatever. I didn't want to miss it, so we're not going to miss Christ's return. But he's drawing an analogy here. Don't get involved with other things that pull you away from the real purpose of life. Watch, therefore, and pray. Now notice verse 36. Watch and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape. You might want to look that up in some other translations. Worthy to escape. What do I need to be doing and what am I going to be escaping from? Other translations say that uh, you may have the strength to escape. The strength to resist the poles of this world. The faith to endure to the end. These are a number of the translations you might want to look up there. Another one said that you have the power to survive. Things are going to be difficult. Things will get difficult in the coming future, but we've got to be prepared for that. 
We've got to be prepared for those things. There's another scripture I want to read a little bit later. But these are the warnings. These are the admonitions that Jesus gave his disciples. Not just love everybody and not just love God and not just give your heart to the Lord. But to do some of these things, keep my commandments, walk in my footsteps, follow me, follow my teachings. Not just look at me, but follow my teachings. That you may be worthy to escape what is coming. So what is coming? What are we to watch for? Now we have gone over some of these things for 40 or 50 or 60 years. And yet we've got people drifting away from the church, just forgetting what the church has taught over the years, ignoring really what's actually in the scriptures. What is it that we need to be watching for? I've entitled the sermon, Watch and Get Ready. Watch and Get Ready. And I want to ask several questions. What do we need to watch for? Why do we need to watch? I just gave you a hint where it says if you watch... Hopefully you can escape some of these things that are coming, but there's more to it than that. Why do we need to watch? And then what do we need to be doing while we watch? We're not to be just passively watching things happen. Wow, there's a war coming. Great! No. (laughs) There are things we need to be doing as we're watching. So we're going to be talking about the future, what the Bible predicts in the future came across a little story where the a teacher in school, this must have been first or second grade or third grade maybe, the teacher asked her students, can anybody predict the future with cards? You know, like tarot cards or whatever. And this little kid put up his hand and says, my mom can predict the future with cards. She sees my report card and she predicts what my dad's going to do to me. <laughs> You know, that's very different from what we read. Turn back quickly to uh, Isaiah 46. Where Isaiah was inspired to write something addressing the critics that certainly abounded in his time, just like they do today in our time. But this is what the God of the Bible is able to do. Not the God of the Koran. Not Confucius. Not Nostradamus, but the God of the Bible. Beginning in verse 6, excuse me, in verse 8 of Isaiah 46. So remember this and show yourselves men. In other words, stand up and face reality, guys and girls, ladies, men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there's none other. There's nobody like me. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. God has placed prophecies in the Bible thousands of years ago that are coming to pass today that we've been talking about for 50 or 60 or 70 years. And people kind of made fun of us over the years because we weren't right on everything (laughs) But the big picture, we have been right. And these things are coming to pass today in front of our eyes. And yet we've got people that used to be here. They're walking around in a mall today. 
going to shows, going to movies, watching whatever. Not interested. They've been told that uh, you know, we should be focusing on the good news and not on the bad news. <laughs> Isaiah focused on both good news and bad news. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea focused on bad news and good news. They gave a warning and then they offered a, 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 a vision of hope. It's very positive when we look at the big picture. Declaring the end from the beginning, the future from way back three, four, five thousand years ago. Saying, my counsel shall stand, my purpose will stand. What I have envisioned and inspired in the Bible is going to take place. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, the vision that I had and the dream that you had is sure. And it's going to come to pass. We've been saying certain things over the years that are coming to pass today. Saying, my counsel shall stand. I will do my pleasure. I'm going to do what I've determined I was going to do. Down in verse, uh, latter part of verse 11. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I've purposed it and I will also do it. So what is it that God says he's going to do? Let's look at a number of things. Let's look at what we need to be watching for, why we need to watch, and also what we need to be doing while we're watching. Turn back to Matthew 24 quickly. And I want to go through the first couple of things rather quickly and then focus a little bit more detail on some of the other items that we will talk about. In Matthew 24, we understand, you know, what that <clears throat> chapter is talking about. It's talking about signs of the end of the age. Matthew 24, verse 3, his disciples came to Jesus, tell us, when these things are going to be, and what's going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. This is covered in Mark 13, Luke 21, and also Revelation 6, where it talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The apocalypse is the end of the age, this conflagration when everything comes together, when God comes back and Jesus Christ comes back to judge this earth. This is what the apocalypse is all about. But the disciple says, what's going to be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? We'll talk about a number of these things quickly here. It mentions the very first thing, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. I am the minister of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian and will deceive many. Now, many people think you're deceived. You know, we're a tiny little group. Half a peanut shell in the Pacific Ocean, as Dr. Meredith has mentioned numerous times. What Jesus Christ is talking about, as it mentions this in Revelation 12, 9, that Satan has deceived the whole world. Not just a billion Muslims. How about two billion people that claim to be Christians, that believe in Jesus, but they follow different instructions? some of which are not even in the Bible. What Jesus said, many are going to come in my name, deceiving many. Deceiving many. What does this entail? Keep your finger here. We turn over to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
Because Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke, 20, Luke 21, about false teachers will come, false disciples, false uh, leaders will come, false prophets will come. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, very interesting series of verses. And Paul is talking to the people of Corinth. That would be like talking to the people of New York City today or uh, <clears throat> Dallas, Texas or San Francisco, or L.A., some big city. Uh, Corinth was a port city. There were a lot of ideas floating back and forth. But Paul was very concerned about those people. He said, I'm jealous for you, verse 2 of Second Corinthians chapter 11. I'm jealous for you. I have betrothed you to one husband. I have taught you about Jesus Christ. I have taught you about his message. Verse 4, it says, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus. So here comes a person claiming to be a Christian, but preaching about another Jesus. What would that Jesus look like? Probably have long hair. Teaching very different things. Another Jesus whom you've not, who we have not preached, and you receive a different spirit. You go to some of these, per, these churches today. They've got very different spirits than we do. You know, my wife and I went to a, a funeral one time in a church back in the, the woods in, in Georgia. And it was up on wooden stilts. And uh, the preacher got going, and people started clapping, and the building began to shake. You know, we came in, and I told them I was the minister of, I guess, one of the, I think it was the, might have been the husband of... Uh, or the wife of one of our members attended with us, but their spouse attended at this other church. So I mentioned that I'm the pastor of the church that so-and-so attends, so they put us up in the choir loft. <laughs> and we're sitting up here behind the minister in the choir, and we're looking out at the church. So it was, it was exciting. <laughs> but things got going. A couple people fainted in the aisles, and they had ladies in white going around picking up these people. But it was, it was a different spirit. It was a very different spirit. Now, they were sincere people. But there was a different spirit there. And a different gospel. You know, Jesus Christ came with a gospel about the coming kingdom of God on this earth. Not a gospel about going to heaven, sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. Or bringing everybody home to heaven where you stay forever and ever and ever. That's a different gospel than was in the Scripture. Now Paul even gets stronger. Over in verse 13 he says, For such are false apostles, false teachers preaching these kinds of things, deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. That Satan has ministers who claim to be Christians. And Paul is saying, be careful. Now, many of you have come out of churches like that. The tragedy is we have had people sit here in the churches of God and go back into these things. And that is sobering. Very sobering. 
And again, they're sincere. They think they're doing the right things. Where will you be in five years? Where will you be in ten years? Where will you point your children? These are things to think about. These are things to think about. I was traveling recently and stopped in the airport, picked up a book entitled, Can America Survive? Written by John Hagee. He's a preacher down in Texas. I was thinking about the sermon when I saw the title of the book. I thought, I'm going to read this on the plane. It's one of the things I enjoy about some plane flights. Is if it's two or three hours, I got two or three hours with no phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> and I can read. What's interesting, too, you know, you go through these airport bookstores and people are buying these paperback novels, their romantic fantasies and this and that and the other thing. Very few people buy stuff like this and read it on the plane because I look around to see what people are reading. It's either a magazine or uh, uh, crossword puzzles that, that keep your mind occupied. But you don't put much in it. You know, we can take advantage of these things. It's interesting. I, I don't know that I'd recommend the book. Well, it, it's interesting because it'll help. <laughs> it may help you appreciate the booklet that Dr. Meredith has written on 14 signs of Christ's return. I made a list of the 14 signs, and I made a list of his 10 signs. They're pretty different things. They're pretty different things. Mr. Hagee calls the uh, king of the north Russia. Uh, he knows that uh, the two witnesses will be Enoch and Elijah. Uh, the 144,000 are 144,000 Jewish evangelists from the 12 tribes of Israel. <laughs> 144 Jewish evangelists from the 12 tribes of Israel. See, he doesn't understand that. I'm not trying to be funny. <laughs> it's sad because he's got a congregation, apparently, of 19,000 people who look to him as their spiritual leader. There are a number of things he doesn't understand. He says Christians don't need to worry about the tribulation. Because they will be raptured off to heaven and they can watch all the action from the balconies of heaven up in the clouds. It's not quite the way it's going to be if we follow the scriptures. It's interesting, he says, you know, the rapture is like the Trinity. Neither one are mentioned in scripture, but the truth of those things is in the scriptures. It doesn't work that way. But this is what people are buying that are interested in the subject. I would really encourage you to go back through the booklet again, 14 Signs of Christ's Return, where Dr. Meredith goes right down through the scriptures. and says these are the things that are going to happen. It's very different from Mr. Hagee's approach. In Revelation, uh, let's go to Revelation 6 quickly, where it talks about the... Uh, <clears throat> Things are going to happen prior to Christ's return. <clears throat> and we'll just talk about the first of the uh, four horsemen here. <clears throat> I 
in verse 2, it says, I looked and behold a white horse, and he sat on it. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. This first horseman on the white horse is what Jesus Christ was talking about in Matthew 24, about false religion, religious deception. But notice here, this guy riding the white horse, uh, he's got a bow and a crown, and he went out conquering. It's talking about a militant form of religion, a militant form of religion. And we're seeing that with these Islamic radicals, very militant. You either convert or are going to blow up your country. You either believe in Allah or cut your head off. Now, what we may see also is a reaction, especially in Europe, as we're beginning to see this right now. And we may see a militant reaction over there to the Islamic presence in Europe. What we're being told here in Revelation chapter 6 about this first horse, things are going to get violent in terms of religion in the years just ahead. So these are some things that are coming that we need to be aware of, we need to be watching. Okay, let's go back to Matthew 24 quickly. Several other things are mentioned here in addition to the religious deception. And I think we're all aware of these things, so we'll not spend a whole lot of time on this. But the second sign that Jesus mentioned, you hear of wars and rumors of wars. In other words, violence and warfare. We've had two world wars in the last century that took the lives of millions of people. But now they're talking about a possible World War III breaking out in the Middle East. You know, the... President of, uh, of Iran is working on nuclear weapons. And if they use those, probably first against Israel, it's going to probably start a conflagration that's going to spread. And it appears to be just a matter of time. Just a matter of time. Wars and rumors of wars. You know, we're involved as the United States and some other countries in Afghanistan, Iraq, other places around the world. Various countries are rebuilding and beefing up their military powers. China, Russia, Europe wants a European army. This is what's happening. These things are building on the world scene, and we've been talking about this for years. And it talks about droughts and famines and in pestilences and other types of disasters. You know, as the area down in Australia that grows wheat, the last couple of years have had a drought, the worst in a thousand years they were talking about, and how those fields are underwater, a biblical proportion, a flood of biblical proportion. In Russia, in the Ukraine where they grow wheat, They had bad weather over there. South Africa has had bad weather that has affected their wheat crops. I was talking with um, one of our ministers out in the Midwest, and he was talking about the um, food stocks, food stores in the United States and in the world are shrinking. At some of their lowest levels, this is not a good time for those food stocks to start shrinking whenever wheat crops and corn crops are being affected all around the world. And China is growing, 
has more money to spend on food. And they could probably eat up most of the world's wheat crops. I mean, this is the times in which we're living. It's not a time to go to sleep. Natural disasters. You know, we had the tsunami, the big tidal wave that occurred in the Indian Ocean a couple of years ago. 250,000 people were killed. And then we had the earthquake in Haiti. Around 300,000 people were killed. And over a million are homeless today, still living in shelters down there. And then just the other day, we had the, there was another big storm and flooding in Brazil. You saw the pictures on the Internet. Uh, this is what's happening. Now, some of this may be related to natural cycles that go on. But these natural cycles are hitting at the same time. You know, world wars don't run in cycles necessarily. <laughs> but we're being threatened with that the same time as some of these other weather-related things. But Jesus says here in verse 8, this is, or these are the beginning of sorrows. This is just the beginning of what's happening, or what's going to be happening. The beginning of what's coming. So these are things we need to be watching for and watching uh, about. I think Dr. Meredith mentioned in his booklet on uh, 14 signs, says when you understand Bible prophecy, when you understand this big picture, watching the news becomes really exciting or sobering, or just whatever word you want to use. I mean, you begin to see, wow, the Bible talks about this, and here it's happening. The Bible's talked about this, and this is happening too. Again, it's not something to panic about, but to realize God said, go back to the scripture we just read in Isaiah 46. God says, I have predicted the future from a distant time in the past, and I'm going to bring it to pass. You go through the book of Ezekiel, it mentions over and over again, they shall know that I am the Lord that I bring things to pass that I have said I would bring to pass. People today don't think God is real. They laugh at that whole concept. And yet these words in Ezekiel are going to jump out of the pages one of these days as people begin to realize God said it, it's in the book, and somebody's going to have to tell them it's in the book because most people don't understand the Bible today. And that's our job, to begin to explain these things. Let's look at another dimension of Bible prophecy. And this has to do with the future of the United States and Britain and Canada and South Africa. Mr. Hagee asked the questions, can America survive? And he generally understands it's going to become very difficult for America. He talks about the death of the dollar, the criminalization of Christianity, and how things are going badly and will go badly for us. And yet other people, other churches, don't even talk that much about these things. You just love the Lord and everything will be fine. And you get wafted off to heaven and raptured away. And uh, I don't want to get on that subject. <laughs> but it's scary, you know, for people to get into that. He's, he talks about, you know, a jet plane will be flying across the Atlantic and the pilot's raptured away and pfft, there go 300 people in a drink. Is that the kind of God that we worship? Does God do things like that? Now, that's not a God of love. God is going to create, or excuse me, uh, uh, correct backsliding nations. And the Bible tells us how and why. But if we look at some of these other scriptures, in Leviticus 26, <clears throat> 
Leviticus 26 is one of the chapters on the blessings and cursings. And what this chapter has to deal with is really the covenant that the Israelites made with God. And those, those covenants were agreements with obligations. One of the terms that we use in the OTS class that actually one of the authors of the textbook uses is that much of the Old Testament is what is called Deuteronomistic history. That is basically built around this theme that God was trying to get the Israelites to understand. If you obey my laws, you're going to be blessed. If you go contrary to my laws, there will be consequences. Deuteronomy 28 says virtually the same thing. You know, we try and teach our children, look, listen, <laughs> and things will go better. Don't listen, and you'll get in trouble. But it's not only our kids that need to learn that. As adults, we need to be reminded. If we go contrary to God's ways, it's not going to work. And sometimes we bang our head against the wall because it feels so good when we stop. Is that the reason we bang our heads against the wall? No. <laughs> We'd be better off if we didn't bang our heads against the wall. Then there wouldn't be any pain. God is a God of love. He said, look, do it this way and it's going to be better. But this is what Deuteronomistic history, this is an academic term, but it's, it's the theme that runs through the scriptures. You read through the book of Judges. They had this cycle that they go through. They're doing pretty good. They drift away from God. Then they cry out to God, please help us. And then God intervenes. And then things go pretty good for a while. And then they go off again. <laughs> and it calls the cycle of the judges. They went through this numerous times. They just didn't learn. Leviticus 26, beginning in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season, and the land shall yield its produce. In other words, things are going to go better. Verse 6, I will give you peace in the land, all conditioned on, if you obey me, if you follow my instructions. Verse 14, if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, if you despise my statutes, See, Jesus told his disciples in the New Testament, if you love me, keep my commandments, and it'll go better for you. And if you despise my statutes, you turn your nose up at them, turn away from them. Or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments, I will do this to you. Verse 6, 16. I will even appoint terror over you. Now, 9-11 was probably the beginning of what we're going to see in the years ahead. And that was pretty traumatic for America. Wasting disease and fever and so on. Your enemies shall uh, eat the food or eat the seeds that you plant. Verse 17, I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you. Verse 18, and after this, if you do not obey, then I will punish you seven times. In other words, an increasing intensity, increasing uh, <clears throat> uh, increasing problems. God's just going to turn the, the volume up a little bit. I will break the pride of your power. In other words, America, Britain, Canada, 
other nations, Israelite nations around the world, are going to see their power broken economically, militarily, politically, when God literally takes away the protection from us. Again, these are things we've been talking about for years. We're seeing these things happening today. We're seeing it happening today. Now, God is going to do this for reasons, because we've turned our back on God. Okay, you drive around Charlotte, there'll be all kinds of people in church tomorrow. But tomorrow isn't the Sabbath. They're going to be following a different Jesus, a different God, a different gospel. And God said, I'm going to have to intervene and teach you guys some lessons. Turn over to Isaiah. <clears throat> Let's look at a couple of scriptures. Isaiah chapter 1 is almost like an abstract of the rest of the book. In other words, Isaiah talks about the problems you're getting into. He says, sit down, let's talk it over. Uh, things can work out in a very different way. And in the rest of the book, he adds more details to that. But you pick up in Isaiah chapter 1. <clears throat> Verse 2, it says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. In other words, listen, everybody. For the Lord has spoken, I have nourished and brought up children. Now, he's not talking about the Chinese here. He's talking about the Israelite peoples and the people that are living amongst the Israelite peoples. I've blessed them, but they've rebelled against me. Verse 3, Israel does not know. My people don't consider. They don't understand what's happening around them. Verse 4, alas, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers. Children are, their children are corruptors. They've forsaken the Lord. They've provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away backwards. If you jump across the page or wherever it is in your Bible, beginning in verse 12, Isaiah talks about the religion of Israel. Now, what we need to understand here is when the ten tribes of Israel broke away from the tribe of Judah, Jeroboam set up an idol, and he had a feast in the eighth month instead of the seventh month. Baal, that many of the uh, Israelites and the, the Jews began to worship later, was a sun god. So they may have had something about Sunday, too. But this is what God is talking about through Isaiah as we move down through these verses. He says, when you come be to uh, appear before me, whenever you come to worship me, verse 12, who's required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. Have you ever watched a Catholic service? Where they're swinging a little thing around, the incense is going all over the place. This wasn't what God had in mind. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. This was not the Jewish holy days or the Jewish Sabbaths. This is what Jeroboam incorporated, brought into Israel. And it was brought into Judah later. This is what God is talking about. Your stuff that you've come up with to worship me. He said, I've had it with that. I will hide my eyes from you, verse 15, even though you make many prayers. 
I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And then he says in verse 16, wash yourselves off, repent. Change, don't keep doing these types of things. And you go through Isaiah 3 where it talks about uh, the leaders. I'm going to take away your leaders. Verse 4 of chapter 3, I'm going to give children to be their princes and babes will rule over them. There's not a lot, bunch of people running around in diapers in the White House or somewhere. He's talking about immature, inexperienced individuals are going to lead you down the wrong path. Over in verse 12, it says, As for my people, children and their oppressors, women rule over them. And we've seen this women's lib movement over the last 10 or 15 years. Well, my people, those who lead you cause you to err. They're taking you down the wrong path. They're telling you that good is evil and evil is good. You read that over in chapter 5, verse 20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. God says that homosexuality is an abomination. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. He said it's terrible. It's horrible. And yet our vice president recently said that America is evolving in his understanding of marriage. And it's just a matter of time until it will be accepted as normal. See, our leaders are causing us to err. This thing about homosexuals in the military is probably going to destroy our military. If you read the stuff on the Internet, people say, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. Tell that to the Commandant of the Marine Corps. Tell that to the Secretary of the Army. Tell that to people that have served. and said it's going to destroy the military is going to weaken our country. You might want to do a little bit of reading on that, but this is what's happening today. People say, oh, it's no big deal. Let's watch and see. And God says you're going to go down the tubes. It's not going to be pretty what we're going to be seeing. Hosea chapter 8, I would encourage you to just read the whole chapter. It was talking about the Israelite peoples. America, Britain, Canada. And it says, basically, Israel has rebelled against me. They have forgotten their maker. And they viewed the things in this book. The laws of God is a strange thing. If you say anything about homosexuality today, it's, well, you're a bigot. You're biased. You're just one of these fundamental religious fanatics. This is hate messages. Now, God says it's an abomination. I never designed human beings to function that way. Now, I'm preaching to the choir because you understand these things. But it's amazing how many people in this nation have forgotten these things or don't even know these things are here because they're not being told or they don't believe it. Well, this is just a bunch of myths and stories. So we're beyond this stuff. Now, this is what's coming down the road. Jeremiah 30 talks about Jacob's a time of Jacob's trouble is coming. It talks about a sick nation. And the last verse of chapter 30 in Jeremiah, it says, You will understand these things in the latter days. It's all going to begin to make sense. 
at a point in time in history. And this is one of the things Mr. Hagee talks about. He says, 10 prophetic signs that we are the terminal generation. We are the last generation. He understands that. And some of his uh, prophetic signs we've talked about before. But this is what's coming down the road. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 5 very quickly. Ezekiel talks about pretty much the same thing. There was some discussion in the church, uh, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. Well, Ezekiel was talking to the Jews. He wasn't talking to the Israelites. Somebody wasn't reading the book that made statements like that. Notice in chapter 2 of Ezekiel, God says to me, or God said to Ezekiel, verse 3, Son of man, I'm sending you to the children of Judah. That's not what it says, does it? It says, I'm sending you to the children of Israel. There are 12 tribes in Israel. To a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you you found, and eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel, America, Britain, Canada, other places around the world. Verse 4, he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my or speak with my words to them. This was Ezekiel's commission. He was to be a watchman to warn the children of Israel. Mentions over here in verse 17, chapter 3, Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth. Notice in verse in chapter 5, why is God sending this message? Why is God warning these people? Now here it talks about Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was the, the capital. Thus says the Lord of God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of nations and countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. They have refused my judgments. They have not walked in my statutes. Again, Hosea talks about the nation of Israel rejecting God's way of life. This is why our nations are going to be punished. We have been you know, saying this for literally decades. God has blessed us incredibly. All you have to do is step outside the United States borders or leave uh, Britain and go to Africa somewhere or just some of these other developing countries. God cares for people all around the world, but he blessed the Israelite nations because he wanted them to be an example. We've not been that example. And when you bless somebody and they turn their back on you, there will be corrections coming. But God doesn't do these things, as we will see, without letting people know what's coming down the road. You know, is, is, are these prophecies correct? Does anybody else notice these things? He was given an article from the U.S. News and World Report from December This was just a couple of weeks ago. The title of the article is the major editorial in the magazine. Watching America's decline and fall. We've been saying this is going to happen for 50 or 60 years. Another article I came across on the Internet the other day. Four scenarios for the coming collapse of the American empire. 
could be economically, could be uh, some sort of a bomb, could be several other things. But this is what they're talking about, not just in the living church of God, but in major news magazines. This uh, fellow that teaches up at Harvard, the British uh, economist, Neil Ferguson, he's been talking about America's downfall could begin very suddenly. Same thing that Isaiah says, several different places. It's like a bulge on a wall, and all of a sudden it goes, <clears throat> and it goes. And he said it could happen very suddenly, and he said probably within the next two or three years it could start. Will we be ready at that time if we have two or three years to get ready? But this is what people are talking about that have nothing to do with the church of God. Okay, let's move on quickly. The third thing to look at is this rise of a beast power in Europe. And I'd suggest that you read the booklet that we publish about the beast of Revelation. But Daniel 2 talks about Nebuchadnezzar having an image or dream of an image of four empires. There's the Babylonian Empire, the Medes and Persians, then the Greco-Macedonian Empire, and then the Roman Empire that winds up with feet of clay and toes of iron and clay. That's not going to stick together very well. And if you've been watching what's happening in Europe, that's exactly what's happening over there. You know, they don't get along that well, the different countries, but they're being kind of pushed together. I've used this example before. I was riding up the Rhine in a train a number of years ago with a German fellow. He's an older guy, probably about 70 years of age. He was a filmmaker in Germany prior to World War II. I said, what do you do now? He said, well, I started another business. They won't allow me to make movies anymore. And we talked for a little while, and I said, uh, what are your thoughts on the European Union? He says, they tell us it's supposed to keep us from getting into another war. But he said, you know, I'm not so sure about that. And he said, I'm going to be too old, so it's not going to matter to me. But he, he doesn't believe the propaganda. He knows that things could explode over there and move in a very different way. There was an article I came across just the other day written by... Um, Peter Osborne is a writer for the Daily Telegraph in Britain. Very sharp individual. He says the Euro crisis that they're going through right now with the various countries uh, uh, needing financial bailouts. He says the only way to save the Euro is the destruction of its members. What he means is they're going to have to give up their financial uh, authority to set their own budgets. They're going to have to let somebody else do that. And the Germans are basically saying, if we're going to bail you guys out, we want to see your books. <laughs> because the Greeks lied twice to the EU. Said, we're, do we're fine, we're fine. But they were spending way beyond what they could afford. So what they're saying is the time is coming. You have to give up your national authority. You're going to have to surrender your sovereignty, which is what Revelation 17 says. The ten leaders, ten kings will... Give up their power, surrender their power, surrender their authority, their sovereignty. And this is happening today. And it may be a financial crisis that pushes them in that direction. Again, we've been saying this for years. You know, a friend of mine was 
was talking to him one time. He said, well, Doug, you guys still preaching about 10 nations in Europe? I said, yes, we are. He says, there are 27. What are you going to do about that? I said, we're going to keep watching. <laughs> because every time something happens over there, they start talking about, well, a core of nations may move out ahead. A core of nations, a smaller group of nations. So these, again, are things that we have been talking about for years. Uh, Daniel 8 and 9 talk about a treaty that's going to be made by a beast power, by a power in Europe, probably with the Jews in Jerusalem. And they'll apparently let them start offering sacrifices again. But then it said those sacrifices will stop about three and a half years later. So when we see those sacrifices starting, we better be watching. We better keep our eyes open because they're going to stop three and a half years later. And then things are going to really come apart. Isaiah chapter 10. Let's go there quickly. Who's going to do these things? Isaiah chapter 10. God talks about the Assyrian. Verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation, against the people of my wrath. I'm going to let him... Carry out the punishment. Now, the Arabs in the 14th century understood or made the connection between Assyria and Germany. And some people think that's silly today. But the Arabs understood 600 years ago. <laughs> they made that connection. And it fits. That God is going to use Assyria to correct the backsliding nation. It says, verse 7, it says, He does not mean so. In other words, they probably have some scenarios of what they may do, but there may be uh, external circumstances that push them in a direction. And they wind up being an instrument in God's hand. I just turned in an article for Tomorrow's World on Germany's quiet comeback. And they have been coming back since 1946. Very slowly, they rebuilt their economies with American aid. They became the engine, the locomotive that was pulling Europe ahead towards unity. And then they sent forces into Bosnia, into the Balkans. First time after World War II, the German combat troops were active outside Germany. And then they sent troops into the Congo. And then they've got some troops uh, off the Horn of Africa. They've got troops in Afghanistan. They've been slowly rebuilding. They've been training German pilots in New Mexico since 1958. They're top gun pilots. It's the same base where we have based the F-117, which is a stealth fighter. It's the same base where we have based the F, I think what it is, the F-22 Raptor, which is a classified fighter may fly three times the speed of sound. If you watch, go on the Internet, put F-22, and look at some of the videos there. This thing dances through the air. It's incredible what it can do. But those fighters are based where German pilots are being trained today in flight training and weapons technology. And this may not sound like much, but the Germans trained pilots in France 
between World War I and World War II to get, under, get away from the treaty that, they, that limited what they could do. They tested uh, tanks in Russia so that they, they weren't being tested in Germany. They were prepared when World War II came along. They were limited by how many troops they could train, so they trained officers instead. Then all they had to do was draft them in. I still remember the visit I had up in Norway. I flew up and uh, <clears throat> went through a fortress uh, that overlooked the bay. And there was a, a museum to the Nazi resistance there. There was a young fellow probably in his 20s who was in charge of the uh, museum. And a girl, probably college girl, 18, 19. And I said, uh, the Germans came in here overnight and took over your country. I said, do you guys have any concerns today about the Germans, since they're the head of the European Union and leading everything? And the guy just looked at him and said, we don't worry about that. That's ancient history. You know, Churchill wrote his book on a gathering storm. Read the introduction to that. He says, the reason I'm writing this book is to share the lessons of history with a future generation. He was hopeful that people would learn something and not have to repeat history again. Now, we've talked about this for years. What's interesting is, I think, um, about Isaiah. Isaiah is writing about the Assyrian that God is going to use. One of the books I was going through recently said Isaiah was writing. He wrote from about 740 B.C., to about 680 or 690. Israel fell in 720 B.C. Isaiah had been writing for 20-some years before Israel fell. It said he was writing during the time when the ominous shadow of Assyria was beginning to spread across the Middle East. We have been talking about Assyria coming back, Germany coming back for 50 or 60 years. And that's where Germany is today. And people make fun of what we're talking about. Isaiah was doing the same thing. He wrote during the prosperity years when things were good. But he saw the shadow of Assyria spreading across the Middle East. We've been trying to tell people the same thing. But not many people want to listen today. A couple of other things, and then we'll conclude. The Bible also talks about a king of the north and a king of the south. Mr. Hagee thinks the king of the north is Russia. Yet that king of the north is going to be the beast power that develops in Europe. Because some people in some of the churches of God today are being told that America is the beast. It doesn't fit. The resurrections, revivals of the Roman Empire occurred in Europe, not in Chicago. And the final revival of the Roman Empire is going to be in Europe again. That's where it's going to be. That's where we need to be watching. Let's go to Daniel 11. <clears throat> Daniel 11. Talks about the clash of these two kings that is coming. Verse 40, it says, At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him or push against the king of the north. 
And then the north, the king of the north will come against him like a whirlwind and overrun a number of countries. What is this push or this attack against the king of the north? There's a couple of possibilities we need to watch. Could be demographically. They've got, they figure, about 17 or 18 million Muslims have moved into Europe. They're not assimilating. And it's going to be just a matter of time until they begin to take over. So there could be a a, a demographic uh, dimension to this push. Could be a religious thing. I mean, these things can play a role. That uh, Islam and Christianity are two different religions. Came across a book very recently by Christopher Caldwell. I think he writes for the Financial Times. But he made a very interesting statement about what's happening in Europe today. He says that the Europeans have replanted the seeds of a threat that has taken centuries of patience and violence to overcome. In other words, they've allowed the seeds of Islam to be planted in Europe, and they're starting to grow. He says Islam was the arch enemy of European civilization, nearly destroyed Europe. And it has been their chief antagonist for over 1,400 years. And they're being told now, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Something's wrong. Elevators don't go to the top floor in some of these countries. Because these things are going to explode. It's just a matter of time. And when you add a military dimension to this, where they may be shooting rockets in different directions. There's an item in your, uh, your uh, bulletin today about the Hezbollah in Lebanon has gained air superiority over Israel without any airplanes. They've got guidance systems in their missiles from Iran. And they can press a button and determine where that missile is going to go. They don't need to fire hundreds to hit one target. But this was an Israeli Israeli defense expert. He said they've gained aerial superiority without any airplanes. And this is going to be costly. Talks about a king of the south. Who's this king of the south? You know, Iran is way to the east. It's not to the south. You know, as Dr. Meredith mentions in his booklet on 14 signs, the Arabs are looking for a Mahdi, a Messiah to appear. And it appears that that Mahdi will, will pull nations together. And it appears that Egypt, Saudi Arabia, other countries are going to be part of that. So if we start looking at one country or another, maybe we need to consider a person who is a religious figure. You know, Muhammad was a prophet and a, 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 a general, a warrior. So if somebody comes along, there's a, a, something in the paper just recently about an example, not necessarily this person, but this El-Sadar, uh, a Shiite cleric, came back into Iraq and it said this young Shiite cleric, once blamed for some of the worst uh, uh, sectarian violence, 
Before he could speak, there was almost five full minutes for the rapturous crowd of around 20,000 people to quiet down. In other words, he just walked out there and people went nuts. What if a person comes along who's a religious leader who pulls Shiites and Sunnis together? I'm just speculating here. As opposed to a political figure that's able to pull those people together. We've talked about the King of the South being a Muslim uh, combine of nations. We have to watch to see how these things are going to work out. But it talks about the, there's going to be a push against the king of the north, and then he's going to come like a whirlwind against some of the nations in the south, which include Egypt that's mentioned. You've been watching the news just in the last couple of days. There was the, uh, I think it was the president of Tunisia, was had to leave his country. Because he's had a very oppressive uh, regime. He's been in power for, what, 30 years, something like that. And he left his country. Uh, there's problems in Lebanon right now. Their, their government's coming apart. And he pointed out that uh, uh, President Mubarak in Egypt is 82 years old. He may not live that much longer. And they're looking at a period of instability. The... Uh, the king of uh, Saudi Arabia is 85 years old, something like that. His successor is 82. And they're both sick. I mean, physically sick. And it was one other one I was trying to think of that um, it just looks like there's going to be a period of instability coming. And things could change over there very rapidly. And all of a sudden you've got nations that instead of being allies of America are now beginning to move in a different direction. So these are things to watch. What should we be doing as we see these things come to pass? You know, we're not going to be dragged off to heaven or wafted off to heaven and then watch the action from the balconies of heaven. It's not going to happen that way. We are commissioned in Ezekiel chapter 3 and 33 to be a watchman a watchman to the house of Israel, to sound an alarm, to explain the prophetic significance of what's happening today. Somebody's got to do that. We're going to be held responsible for that. You read that in Ezekiel 33. It says, if you see the stuff coming and you don't say anything and people die, their blood is going to be on your shoulders. But if you give a warning and people hear and respond... They will be saved, and you will be saved and rewarded. So we have a job to do. You know, we don't have time to sit around and rebuild our government within the church of God every 10 or 15 years. We, can't, we, we don't have time to do that. We can't just sit around at home and talk about Jesus. We've got a job to do. You know, these things have got to be delivered. These messages have got to be delivered. We can't just talk about the wonderful good news. There are this bad news coming. Why do we have to talk about those things? Check Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, where God says that uh, he will do nothing until he gives a message through his servants, the prophets. Now, some people may say, well, we don't have any prophets today. <laughs> you know, we have a prophetic message to deliver. God used prophets 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Daniel, for ancient Israel and ancient Judah. Is he going to leave America and Britain without any prophetic warnings? That doesn't even make sense. You know, people explaining these prophecies have a job to do. God has given us a privilege and an opportunity to work together as a team to deliver a message that's very powerful. The second thing that we've got to do is to preach the gospel of a coming kingdom of God, the good news. There is a government coming that's literally going to bring peace to this earth and solve the problems. This is one of the messages that's very powerful. Mark sixteen fifteen, Jesus said, You go into all the world and preach the gospel. Explain the truth. Explain the hope that is coming. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the bad news here today. It could scare some people. But, you know, the exciting thing is Christ is going to return and set up a government on this earth and restructure everything. You know, as young people and as adults, you're not going to miss anything by putting your heart in the work today. You have an opportunity to prepare for what's coming. It's going to be very exciting Matthew ten six, Jesus told his disciples, you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and explain these things. To fulfill that, you have to know who these people are and where they are. And yet people in the church of God have been told that's silly. You know, the gospel's not about Israel. You want to bet? Jesus said, you go to the house of Israel and explain to the people living there, whether you're Israelites or not, this is what's going to happen to this country. Help them understand so they can change and repent and draw closer to God. You know, we're told very plainly in the Bible, Revelation 5.10, that Christ is going to come back and the saints are going to rule with him as kings and as priests, leaders in the coming kingdom of God. Isaiah 30, verse 20, 21, talks about you're going to, people are going to see their teachers. And their teachers are going to explain, this is the way, walk you in it. This is the way that really works. If you can put your heart into that now, learn that way of life, you're going to have a chance to teach it in the coming kingdom of God. Third thing that we need to do is to get ready. These were the scriptures we went over at the very beginning. Watch, be ready. Watch, get ready. Go back and read Ezekiel chapter 7, verses 6 through 10. It talked about Ezra, that he came back to Jerusalem from Babylon and said he was a skilled scribe. You don't, get, you don't become skilled as a scribe by going to sleep on a Bible. No, you study it. You study it. It says he prepared his heart. He sought God. And he wanted to prepare to teach the statutes of God. That's what he did. Then go to Nehemiah chapter 8. And it says, Ezra came back to Jerusalem, stood up on a podium, a platform, and taught the people, explained the meaning of the scriptures, the same thing we're doing here. And people didn't go to sleep and said they rejoiced. Said, wow, this is incredible. <laughs> this is great. This is wonderful. This is the future, brethren. This is what we've been called to do, what we've been called to become part of. Mr. Ames was mentioning in the announcements, 
you know, the three sources that we have to work with today, the booklets, the Bible study course, Living University classes, we've got all kinds of things to use. And hopefully we're taking advantage of that. Let's look at one scripture and we'll conclude. Ephesians chapter 5. You know, Paul was talking to the church in Ephesus. You know, Paul came into Ephesus. Ephesus was a big religious center. And after a period of his preaching, people weren't even coming to the temples anymore. They were burning their magic books. I mean, he had a powerful impact on that country. In Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 8, it says, You who were once in darkness, but now are in the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You know, Paul told the uh, Corinthians, come out of this world, be separate. You know, take a different course. Let no one deceive you. <clears throat> uh, wait a minute. Talks about finding out what is the acceptable to the Lord. What is God's will? Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Rather, expose them. But down in uh, verse 15, it says, See then that you walk circumspectly, walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. Make the most of the opportunities that you have because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You take advantage of the Living University classes, take advantage of the Sabbath, 24 hours, to think about why am I here, where am I going, what do I need to do to get ready for what's coming? Jesus Christ told his disciples, yes, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. But he also said, watch, keep your eyes open, pray that you might escape what is coming. And you might even go back and read, I think it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where he says, your salvation is coming. Salvation means to be saved from destruction. You don't have to go through these things. God is going to protect his people because he's going to need a group of people to teach the world the truth. Brethren, you and I have been called become part of God's family to become the teachers in the coming kingdom of God. He's going to need a group of people to warn this world about what's coming, but also to offer a sense of hope that there's a very positive future coming for those that are willing to watch and get ready for that future.